Well, I guess everybody will come back. I wanted to tell you all a couple things. Uh, first, um, idea of prophecy in church. This is something that we are going to teach on that we need to teach on. In Corinthians 12, Corinthians 13, and Corinthians 14, uh, Paul covers this subject a lot. He said, above everything else, accepting love, all gifts must, must move in love, that prophecy was uh, for the edification or the building up of the church. Well, I don't know about you, but the, one of the first Christian meetings I was ever in, um, I had this fluttering in my, my stomach and my heart started to beat real fast. And I, had, I knew I had to say something, but I didn't literally know what it was. And I didn't, I'd never been in something like this. I'd been in old, dry, stiff churches where nobody spoke but the pastor. And I, I didn't know what was going on. And uh, I had been delivered from a very racist background, a very divisive, very violent background. And I spoke in this meeting at a time when the song kind of died down, everything got quiet, and it was as if everybody was waiting for somebody to speak. And I didn't know that's how this worked. And I spoke, and I, I couldn't tell you what all came out of my mouth, but it came out quickly and forcefully, and I remember thinking, wow, uh, I didn't even have to think about that. And afterwards, the guy who was leading the meeting came up and said he wanted to thank me for that prophecy. And I'm telling you, I, I, had, I had serious doubts about the group I was in anyway. Preston Coles was there. He had long, headbanger kind of hair. Looked like it was hiding a joint. It wasn't, but I mean, that kind of... And people were speaking in tongues, which was new to me, and... Uh, I was kind of a jar-headed jock and I was having a real hard time with all of that anyway. And now here's this little hippie pastor with tattoos and sandals that is thanking me for a prophecy and I didn't know what to think about that. Because in my mind, prophecy is something that, uh, you know, Sister Eve's car sales did uh, with a tarot card and Ouija board and a crystal ball. And I thought prophecy always had to do with the future. I want to tell you, prophecy in the Bible is not that. We generally refer to prophets prophesying about the future, prophets doing that. But the gift of prophecy in the Bible has to do with speaking edification and encouragement as directed by God. Uh, you're not saying when you prophesy that you're the Pope, that you're infallible, that everything that you're saying is right. What you are basically doing, and Christians almost always seem to feel a need to uh, explain it before they say it, because they know people don't understand. The Lord is sharing with me. The Lord's impressing upon me. I see a picture of whatever it is that people say. What you're trying to communicate is, I feel the Lord's presence here, and this is something I feel like He wants to share with you. That's what prophecy is. Now, when somebody prophesies, the Word tells you a couple things about it. And this is total lanyap, so we'll get into the message. But a couple things about it. First off, the burden of responsibility is on the hearer, not to treat it with contempt. Don't act like, oh, that's just some... We know that guy, and he's an idiot. Right. It says, do not treat it with contempt, but each person must listen and judge what is said. And the idea is you're comparing it with the Word, you're comparing it with your spirit to see if that's a word that the Lord may have for you. And here's what you'll find out, and where this is just practical. Sometimes 90% of it is God, and 10% is not. And sometimes 10% of it is God, 90% of it is not. That's just the way that it works. You don't throw stones at people for it. 
You know, people get nervous speaking. They get this impression that they feel like they need to share and it comes out all wrong sometimes. That just happens. You honor the motive, you listen to what's said, and you see if God may be encouraging you to do something through it. And that's how prophecy works. We'll teach on a lot more. There is in the Bible a word of knowledge. This is when somehow supernaturally you know something that you could not know otherwise. Donnie Schaefer was a, a friend of ours who was in Mexico. He was talking with a man who didn't believe there was a God, was a drug dealer who ran the town. And uh, Donnie said, well, there is a God. He speaks with me. We're, we're kind of close. And he says, you need to do this, that, and the other. The guy says, well, how, what do you mean God speaks to you? He says, he just spoke to me and told me, you have a 357 that's loaded with 158 grand hollow points under your seat right now. There's no way Donnie could have known that. I mean, especially not with that kind of detail. The drug dealer got up, picked up his seat, and pulled out his gun. He was right, and that was it. That showed the man that God was with him. Sometimes God does that kind of stuff. I, all I can do is tell you it's biblical. There's a word wisdom in the Bible. word wisdom is supernatural knowledge, how to handle an event. Uh, in the Bible, sometimes somebody would, would be praying and say, the Lord has shown me there's going to be a famine. We need to do thus and so. So these giftings are in the body. They're for the purpose of encouraging the body. So if you're ever in a church service, uh, and not all allow this, and I know that, but here we allow everything that's in the Bible. So if you're ever in a church service and you feel a stirring in your spirit as if you need to say something, the Bible says that this is subject to your control. You can put it away and not do it, in which case you'd be disobedient, uh, or you can do it at an appropriate time. If you're not sure whether what you have to say is... Uh, is a prophecy or it's good, find a pastor and say, hey, I feel like the Lord's sharing this with me. That way they can reaffirm it for you and you will grow in your ability to do this because the Bible says you can all prophesy. The reason I say find a pastor is because he can say, no, I don't believe we need to say that today. And then you know, wow, that was just my thought. Or he can say, yeah, that's exactly what I'm feeling. That, that would be great. And then you know next time you get it, this is how it comes. This is how we learn we are encouraged and grow. You all heard in the Bible there are fruits of the Spirit, right? Love, patience, kind, all of those things. Uh, there's nine fruit of the Spirit listed in Galatians. There are nine gifts of the Spirit list, list, listed in Corinthians. In the Bible, the dove is often the symbol of the Holy Spirit. A dove, when it stretches out its wings for flight, has nine feathers on each wings that act as ailerons or flaps. It allows for lift and allows the bird to turn. If it had any one of those missing, you know, it would <laughs> it, fly kind of funny. The church has something missing when we don't have both the fruit of the Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit moving. Most churches have relegated these to some kind of weirdness. They want a business-like environment that is respectable where nobody uh, does anything embarrassing. Friends, I can tell you the church can be an embarrassing place because it's supposed to be self-defacing so that you can be built up in Jesus. And uh, when you invite somebody, it's so funny in a big charismatic service, you invite somebody, you're praying, oh Lord, please don't let the crazy lady on the first row prophesy in tongues today. And that's a whole other thing that I'll tell you all about another time. Or don't let sister so-and-so uh, get excited and run around the church because that kind of stuff happens. And guests go, oh my God, this is craziness. If their heart's right, there's something about it that even though it looks crazy, they'll be drawn to it. 
That doesn't mean everything that happens is God. I'm, look, I've seen people shake and buck and throw things and everything but bark like a dog, but that happened at the turn of the century too. So, I, you know, I don't know what to say other than the Spirit seems to manifest in different ways in different cultures. Black folks do this different than white folks, Asian folks different than American Indians. In Africa, for some reason, people take handkerchiefs and they shake them. And that's a, a, it's like we clap. It's a sign that they're excited and they feel like the Spirit's moving in the congregation. It's just different. Be tolerant. Uh, don't be judgmental. And be willing to be used because it's very, very important. Paul said that these things must be done for the encouragement of the body. Must be. He didn't say it was optional. didn't say you could do it if you like it. He said they must be done. So, incidentally... On the tongue subject, and I'm going to leave this because we will teach on this some other time. The Apostle Paul, the same guy that wrote two-thirds of the New Testament, the guy that we lift up as a hero because we're Gentiles, said, I wish you all spoke in other tongues. I would rather have you prophesy. And it's not an either-or situation. He's saying if he had to choose one or the other, he wants prophecy because it's for the encouragement of everybody, but tongues were for the encouragement of the individual. And we'll teach on all that some other time. I just... Felt like we needed to. Uh, okay. Um, this morning is Sunday, December 19th, and our subject this morning is going to be living waters. So turn with me to John 4, and uh, we'll get started on this. Living waters. You know, that word only appears in the Bible a handful of times, living waters. And it's kind of a strange thing. Water's all over the Bible. But for water to be alive, there's a picture of sea right up there on that map that is dead. It's said to be dead because no life exists in it. The salt content is so high that there's not even microorganisms that live in it. No, no life at all. The Bible's going to tell us about a living water today. This is a part of our series in John. I don't know how many we're up to. We had four in the first chapter and we're on the fourth chapter. So um, we're going to start in John 4, 1, and uh, we'll go from here. Since the Pharisees heard that Jesus was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized but his disciples. Now, you know, as I've been teaching the book of John, this is one of my favorite books. One of the reasons is John includes little parenthetical statements. He will tell part of the story and then he'll tell you a little piece of extra information to help you better understand. Does anybody have any idea why? Why on earth is it important to write down in God's holy word? I mean, the book that would span through the ages to teach you about God that the Pharisees thought Jesus was baptizing, but it wasn't really Jesus, it was the disciples. Why could that be important? Well, the reason is, John set out very early to teach that Jesus baptized with something. And if you turn to John 1, you'll see this. It's John 1, 33. 32. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on Him. I would not have known Him except that the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, The man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is he who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. 
I have seen and I testified that this is the Son of God. Well, this is important. Back to John 4. This is important because the conception was, uh, or the misconception among the Pharisees was, wow, all these people are going to Jesus and He's baptizing. He's even baptizing more than John the Baptist. And it's funny, if you turn on Discovery Channel now, uh, even this time of year, what you see them portray John the Baptist and Jesus as is two rival cousins uh, competing for the affections of the people in Israel. It's the same thing that the Pharisees misunderstood this for. When we know that John said a man can receive only that which was given him from heaven and he must increase and I must decrease and all of these things that the Word teaches. Well, the Pharisees misunderstood this and John the Apostle pointed out, no, the disciples baptized, but Jesus didn't baptize anybody. Well, why would that be important? John does not want you to misunderstand something that he is beginning to teach in the Word. There is a baptism in water for repentance. And there is a baptism in the Holy Spirit that only Jesus Himself does. And He didn't want you to confuse the two. So He didn't want you to think that Jesus was baptizing people with water because He's already made the claim and He makes it many more times. In fact, it's kind of what Jesus is going to start to talk about that Jesus baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Okay, we clear on that? Then we'll keep going. Uh, when the Lord learned of this, He left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now He had to go through Samaria. So He came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. Okay, here's what we've got. Uh, Judea is where He's going. He was in Galilee, which is on that map. So He's headed from the north to the south. Okay? which in the Bible would be said going up to, okay? It's going from the north to the south, and he has to pass through this area here, which is Samaria. Anybody remember from our teaching on Luke 10, uh, the parable of the Good Samaritan, what Samaritans are? There was a civil war in Israel, and the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom split from each other. The northern kingdom went into a captivity under Assyria. The Assyrians, in an effort to dilute the Jewish people, had them intermarry with Assyrians and had them dispersed around the globe. God brought them back uh, to, to their area, but because these people had intermarried with Assyrians, the Jews that had always stayed in the southern part of Israel, um, the Jews that considered themselves more pure, looked at these others as half-breeds. They looked down on them. It's the closest thing you see in the Bible to the kind of racial tension that we had here in the 50s and 60s. Are you following me so far? To say somebody was a Samaritan was like saying the N-word. Okay? So Jesus told the parable in Luke and He made the good Samaritan the hero. Right? Well, now here we are. Jesus is passing from Galilee where He lived down to Judea where the temple of God stood and He has to go through this, this area. And... Uh, Watch what happens. It says, And now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. And Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. Now there's a whole mouthful here. But Jesus tired as he was. Luke points, points out this as well. In fact, it's uh, Luke 2.52 that says, Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature. You remember the story about Jesus going to the temple with uh, debating 
He was about 13 and his parents got on a journey and looked back and didn't see Jesus with him. You remember that story? And then once he realized his parents wanted him with him, he became obedient to them. Luke pointed out from that point forward, he grew in wisdom and stature. Here we see Jesus tired. I want you to remember when you're thinking about Jesus, the Bible declares him to be God. Romans says it. Uh, Colossians teaches that the fullness of God is in him. Hebrews teaches that he's a visible representation of God. But he was also a human being. And he got tired. He got hungry. He got all of uh, the same emotions that you have in you, he had. He just didn't sin. And this is a good example of a time when you see him tired. So he's on his way from Galilee down to Judea or up to Judea. He passes through Samaria and there's this place, Sychar. And it says Jacob's well was there. Does anybody remember when we taught on the well of salvation? Abraham in Genesis 21 made a, a treaty with a guy named Phicol. He then went out and he put a tamarisk tree to mark a well because wells were important. Water was a source of life. They had to be marked and he marked it with an evergreen tree so that year-round it could be seen. And this was symbolic of the well of salvation. God marked it with something everlasting. It was marked because it was important for people to see. You got me? After Abraham comes Isaac. Isaac went and because the treaties had not been kept, these wells had been stopped up, Isaac went and reopened them. He dug out these wells so that they would be there for the people. This is the role of Christians. When uh, the well of salvation gets stopped up, we are supposed to go and we're supposed to dig them out so that the source of life, this source of water, will be available to everybody. Then we get to Jacob's life. You remember? And Jacob, when he was searching for a bride, found her near a well. And he went and he moved the rock out of the way. Do you all remember any of this when you were here? He, there was something stopping up the well and he removed it so that his bride-to-be would have access to this water. He did what all the other shepherds there were unable to do. Do you remember that? It's Genesis 29. Well, we're at that place. We're at that, where Jesus has stopped, tired from the journey, where he stopped at about six, the sixth hour, where we're fixing to have this discussion, is in that place where these wells had been fought for centuries to remain open. And the society knew this is Jacob's well. This is the well that Jacob fought to open up so that we would have life-giving water. Now, the Bible says this is about the sixth hour, and I'm going to teach on this a lot more when we get to a crucifixion. But in John, John records Roman time, not Jewish time. Roman time is just like our time. When do days start for us? 12 midnight. So the sixth hour is 6 a.m. Why would Jesus be tired from the journey? They had been walking all night. Okay? Now, there are people that would disagree with that. I'm just asking you to take that on faith and You'll see that in Luke 1, um, John 1 and John 4 and in John 19, Roman times make sense. And we'll teach that some other time. Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down at the well. It was about the sixth hour. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? See the parentheses here? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. So, Jesus is tired. He's been traveling all night. He gets to a very historically significant place, but to them, it's just a place. If you live in Washington, D.C., is it historically significant? But if you live there every day, it's just a place. You don't always think about what happened there. 
You don't always think about why all of the monuments and stuff are there. Well, this woman is having a meeting with Jesus, and I want to encourage you about this. Meetings with Jesus are never by chance. The events that caused you to come to this place today, the events that have brought you to where you are in life today, were never by chance. You may just thought you got tired along the journey. You may just thought you wanted to drink a water from a well. Whatever it is, God manipulated the circumstances because Acts 17 teaches us that His desire is to have you reach out and find Him though He's never far from you. So, He set boundaries for you. He determined where you would even work and live, the Bible says. That's Acts 17.26. And He did this because He's trying to arrange the meeting with you. So, this place, by the way, is also where Abraham received the covenant that said, to your seed I will give this land, and they will have it forever. It's also where Abraham built an altar that he uh, dedicated to God. So a historically significant place. Jesus is there. It's 6 a.m. and John says his disciples went off to buy food. It left Jesus alone. I want to encourage you about this. There are times in your walk, wives, husbands, whatever it is, where you will have to do something with Jesus alone. If the disciples had been here, they would have had a real problem. This is before Peter gets the vision that says uh, with all the reptiles let down in a sheet that he can eat things and, and anything that he wants and God had taught Peter through that experience that he shouldn't call any man unclean. That was some 10 years after Jesus had been crucified and resurrected. This is two years before we even get to the cross. What I'm trying to tell you is even the Jewish apostles, at this point disciples, had some race issues. Okay, If they had been here, number one, this is a woman. Number two, this is a Samaritan woman. Number three, we're going to find out she's got some religious social kind of problems, things that would make religious people not want to be around her. The disciples would have shunned her and would have thought something was wrong with Jesus for spending time with her. Now, he teaches them later and they understand. I want to encourage you in your walk with God, there will be times that you won't have the support of your friends. God will separate you from people that are a security blanket to you for the purpose of doing something special. Because the truth is, those we love sometimes get in the way of God's work. A good example of that in my life, I had been baptized as a kid. Uh, I'd been baptized more than once. been baptized in a Lutheran church and in a Baptist church. and I could quote Scripture. I felt fairly secure because of the doctrine that I had arranged around me, that other people had arranged, this framework that had been given me. There came a man, like in the Bible, sent from God preaching that came uh, into direct contact that made me really uncomfortable. One of the people in my life I would have looked to for support, somebody to say, no, Eric, it's okay, was my stepfather. So God removed him sent him on a business trip for two weeks, some distance away, so that that comfort was not there in my life when this man began to teach that I was not saved. You know, parents have a certain investment in their children. You want to believe that you did the right things with your kids, that your kids are all right. You want to believe that because if they're not, there are times it speaks something about us we don't want to see in ourselves. Okay? It's not to condemn parents. I'm just telling you that's a natural thing. If... 
When this man came and preached and said, if you say you have fellowship with the Father and you walk in darkness, you're a liar and don't practice the truth. If I had run to my stepfather then and said, he seems to be saying I'm not a Christian, I would have got this response. No, son, you believe Jesus is Lord, don't you? Yes. You were baptized, weren't you? Yes. You go to church, don't you? Yes. And I still would have been lost. So God removed that from my life, from my situation at that moment so that I could be thoroughly shaken. I'm telling you this because as you go through events in your life that are coming and that have come, I mean, don't be surprised when you find out that all your friends have retreated and you're left alone on the battle lines. God arranges this and you'll get this cold feeling like nobody cares, nobody understands. It could be God's appointment in your life. The church in general is a very giving, very helpful place. I mean... When we have it, we're more than willing to pay people's light bills and stuff. We do that kind of stuff because we're the church. But there are times that God arranges the circumstances so that you're left all alone with your problem and not even the church can help you. Sometimes that's God's design because it's a teaching tool. So here we are. Jesus is alone. It's 6 a.m. The disciples have gone into town to buy food. Now, one reason I believe this is Roman time, and I don't know whether you all care about this stuff or not, but... Several Jewish uh, manners and customs books teach that the Jews ate twice a day. When would you think the Jews ate? Breakfast and dinner. What would not make sense is to come in out of the fields in the middle of a productive part of the day for lunch. This was something that the Romans brought in later, lunch, as, as part of the culture that we share. And this is kind of the height, if you think about it, of a relaxed, uh, abundant kind of life when in the middle of the day you can take the siesta and eat all day. Most people got to eat in the morning. They worked from light until dark and then they ate in the evening because during the day they were working. Now I realize that's not the healthiest thing in the world and all of those things, but that's how it happened. As prosperity came or as a sign of a feast, you wanted to do something special, you set aside part of your work day and you ate in the middle of the day. There's a few times Jesus does that. Incidentally, when he went to eat at a Pharisee's house or the time when the woman's bathed in his feet, those kind of things, those are in the middle of the day. It's a special feast. But most of the time in their daily events, they eat in the morning and the evening, the disciples are going to buy breakfast, you know? Now, you've heard sometimes taught about this woman at the well that it was the middle of the day and it was an odd time and she came out in the middle of the day to draw water and no other women would have been around. Not so. Not so. People drew water in the morning. There was breakfast. She was probably out there very early in the morning and this is God set this up. Disciples going to buy food. Jesus there worn out from a journey and alone to meet with this woman. Here's what happens. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town, into the town, to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? See John's little note here. For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Or your footnote will say they don't use the same dishes. If we can be seen at the same place in public, we certainly can't share the same glass. Why? Because these people were thought of as lower. This is no different than a black and a white in 1960 having to use two different restrooms because they were thought of as different. 
or two different water fountains or different seating on the bus. That is the exact situation. Jesus' own followers, the people that were around Him, had not yet progressed far enough in the faith to where they would understand this. The same way that people that were supposed to be Christians in the United States didn't understand it enough to know, to know deep down something cry out in them that it was wrong when it was going on in this country. So God removes them for the sake of this uh, exercise. Here's what this teaches about you. Although we learned from our conversations with Nicodemus in chapter 3, the world, Jesus didn't come to condemn it. It's condemned already. He came to liberate it. It's already condemned. Although all of us have the sentence of death on us already, although some wouldn't want to associate with us because we are like men on death row, Jesus was never too good to associate with you. He came to you at a time when your own peers would not have helped you. He came to you at a time when people would think it would be dirty to drink out of the same glass with you and He was willing to drink out of the same glass. This is what's happening here. This woman is here and she's shocked. The Samaritan woman said to Him, You are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked Him and He would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself as did also his sons and his flocks and his herds? Now, she's recognizing where she's at. She's saying, wait a minute. You don't have anything to draw with and your arms are pretty short. Are you saying that you're greater than Jacob who overcame the problem at these wells by unstopping them? Are you saying that you're greater than the patriarchs? What is it that you're saying? And it's almost a facetious statement. But we know from teaching about the wells of salvation that those men did that in the natural. They fought for this well. They unstopped them. They marked them. They made trees with people to keep this life-giving source of water open for everybody. We know that the reason they did that was to teach us something about salvation. Now Jesus is standing beside that teaching tool, the thing that had been handed down from some 1600 B.C. to 1st century A.D. now. He's standing beside it saying, Hey, if you knew who I was, you'd ask me for water. See, that was never about water. You remember we read the proverb, like a muddy spring or a polluted well is a righteous man who gives way to the wicked? See, these poor Samaritans had been looking at other Jews. They had been looking at their culture. They should have learned about the wells of salvation. They should have seen God as a spring ready to give them life-giving water. But because the people around them were not living the godly life that was supposed to be lived, the proverb was true. Like a muddied spring or a spoiled or polluted well is a righteous man who gives way to the wicked. Jesus was a righteous man, though. His way was right. His well was not polluted. He's standing right there by the teaching tool saying, Hey, lady, if you knew who I was, you'd ask me for water. You'd ask me for the pure life-giving substance. And he uses this term living water. Now, Jews had heard of living water. One of the most popular works uh, in the Old Testament canon of Scripture 
was the book of Jeremiah. It encompassed all of the minor prophets as well. When we say the book of Jeremiah, we think of what Jeremiah wrote. When they say Jeremiah, they think of Jeremiah, they think of Lamentations, which he also wrote, and they thought of many other minor uh, prophets that were all crammed into the same scroll. Jeremiah was an important part of their life. Turn to Jeremiah 2.13. Living water. To get to Jeremiah from John, you'll want to hang a left. You'll pass through Daniel. You'll pass through all the minor prophets. If you get to Isaiah, you went too far. Jeremiah 2, 13 is the first place the word living water appears in the Bible. This is in the Thompson chain on page 837. I want to read you some things that would have formed Jewish thought about living water. My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Stay in Jeremiah for a second. My people have committed two sins. They've forsaken me, which is bad enough, and then they dug their own cisterns. What is that saying? I mean, do you have to be a rocket scientist? Do you really have to see deep into the spiritual realm to see what the cistern represents there? God had a source of salvation. And this was a pure, living water. But the people didn't like it. So they forsook that and then they dug their own wells. Now this is really interesting because the real sin of the Samaritans was not that they were half-breeds. There was nothing about their genetics that were wrong or bad. We see Cornelius, an Italian Roman soldier later, was honored by God despite the fact that he was a Gentile. You and I as far as we know, we're all Gentiles and God has honored us. So it's not genetics that separates you from God. What had the Samaritans done that was not good though? See, God had said there was one place on earth where you would have your sacrifices done. There was one place on earth where there would be Levitical priests who would minister before Him day and night and you would come to that one place and it was in Jerusalem. But the Samaritans had set up in their own town, in their own area, their own altars. They had set up their own sacrificial system. They still do Passover in Samaria today. They forsook the spring of living water and dug their own cistern. Well, what's that like for us? That's when you know what God wants you to do. But you do not do that and you raise up for yourself your own way of doing things. Well, I know in this business situation that the Lord would really have me to do this. But let's face it, that's not going to work. People are going to look at me like I'm stupid. I can't make any money like that. That's the kind of thought. And so you dig your own well. I tell you what, well, I won't do what the lost would do, but I will do this. I'll fudge it just a little bit. I'll take advantage of them just a little bit. I'll manipulate them just a little bit. It's the two wells. Man has a natural tendency to dig their own well of salvation. Now, Jesus is by a well that the patriarchs had given, that the Word had been handed down through, and He's teaching this woman right by this well about opening the wells of salvation. He says, if you knew who I was, you'd want the living water. Living water. If the woman thought about it at all, living water, the only time it was mentioned so far in the Bible is, wow, people forsook God. They forsook the living water and they went after their own source. The next time it's mentioned is in Jeremiah 17. 
In Jeremiah 17, starting in verse 12, "...a glorious throne, exalted from the beginning, is the place of our sanctuary. O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake You will be put to shame." Those who turn away from you will be written in the dust because they have forsaken the Lord, the spring of living water. Who's the spring of living water? The Lord, right? Isn't that what it says? If you forsake Him, you'll be written where? That brings a whole new revelation to John 8 where these people come and they bring a woman that's supposed to be such a bad woman caught in the very act of adultery and they accuse her and they say, Jesus, what are you going to do? And He begins to write in the dust. He's writing in the dust because those people that had come to condemn the woman were guilty of sin themselves. They had forsaken God. So He wrote their names in the dust. But that's not why we turned here. What does this say if you're that woman? If He says, if you knew who I was, if you knew who it was that was asking you, you would ask me and I would give you living water. Who is the living water? The spring of living water, the Lord. So what's He saying? That's just as blatant as Him saying, Hey, if you knew who I was standing here, you'd ask me for the water. Who's the source of the living water? The Lord. That, that's got to get this woman's wheels to turn in. He's the true well of salvation. Turn from here back to John 4. Keep your finger there. I'm sorry, we're going to flip around a bunch today. I'm going to throw a lot at you and hopefully some of it will stick. <laughs> I tell you what, turn to Zechariah. Keep your finger in John. Hang a left to Zechariah. It's easy, easy to find. From Matthew, you'll want to hang a left. Turn a couple pages and you'll be in Zechariah. We're going to be in Zechariah 14. Verse 6. This is page 1061 in the Thompson chain. The topic here being the living water. If you knew who I was... You would ask me and I would give you the living water. Knowing that the Lord is the source of the living water. Knowing that Israel's great sin had been forsaking the Lord and looking for their own source of water. So Zechariah 14, starting in verse 6, tells us more about this living water that they were to be looking for. On that day, there will be no light, no cold or frost. It will be a unique day without time or nighttime, a day known to the Lord. When evening comes, there will be light. On that day, living water will flow out from Jerusalem, half to the eastern sea and half to the western sea. In the summer and in the winter, the Lord will be king over the whole earth. On that day, there will be one Lord and His name will be the only name. If you were an Old Testament scholar as the Jews were, and you knew that the Jews had forsaken the spring of living water according to Jeremiah, they had not received the living water, they had looked for their own water, if you were a Samaritan standing next to a well and somebody spoke to you and said, if you knew who I was, you would ask me for water. Another scripture you might think of is, wow, the day the living water comes is the day that the Lord will be king over all of the earth. This is going to make sense as we read a little further and you find out what he tells her. Are you all back in John? Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God, and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked Him and He would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his flocks and herds? 
Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. Before we get to his answer, why was the well chosen in the first place? Can you live without carbs? Obviously you can. Can you live on very low-fat diets? Yeah, it's not fun, but it, it can be done. Could you live without bread? Yeah. Could you live without meat? Yeah. Vegetarians and all that. Can you eat meat and live without vegetables? Yeah, I'm proof of that. What's the one thing on the planet that nobody can go without? Water. So this was a very natural teaching tool. Everybody, everywhere, had to have water, and there were good kinds and bad kinds. Friends, before we had water filtration systems and factories that purified it and distilled it and all of those things, if you needed water really bad, if you were in this region of Israel, down here on this map, it looks pretty arid, doesn't it? And so, God, you need water. It's been three days. You're feeling pretty peaked. You look up and you see this right here, right? It's blue, beautiful, an oasis. And you run, you fall on your face, and you splash this right in your face, and you find out it's got the thickness of motor oil, and it has so much salt in it that it cannot be consumed. Wouldn't that be disappointing? Yeah, that'd be horrible. This is what people are like when we try to work out our own ways of salvation, or, or others have muddied the waters of salvation through man-made religion, their own cisterns. See, there is an innate drawing in you and in this woman and in every person everywhere to be drawn towards God. But there's been muddy, dead water given instead of living water. This is how people end up serving a rat God or end up serving some chicken Jesus hanging on a cross that looks like a fishing lure and acts nothing like the Jesus in the Bible. Or serving a God that's supposed to be the God of the Bible but tells you to run your planes into buildings, or chop people's heads off. This is how you get muddy, dead water. You're hungry for it. You need it every day. And God has said there's one source. And the patriarchs fought to keep it open. They fought wars over it. They made treaties over it. They marked them. They did everything they could to preserve it for you. And it's been handed down to us. And we've rejected it and looked for our own sources of water. There are no more. There's only one. And it's a spring of living water that causes life. Now Jesus is standing beside the true well next to a person who's a part of a culture that has rejected the source of living water and dug its, dug its own well. And He's talking to her about coming to Him, the Lord, the source of living water. And what does He say He'll do for her? This water, the, water, the natural water, when you drink it, you've got to drink it again. He said, but if you drink this stuff I'm talking about, if you consume the very Word of God, if you have the Spirit of God planted in you, you will never get thirsty again. Well, if we took this literally, as my Roman friends do the next few chapters, you should literally never get thirsty again, right? It's not at all. He's talking about a spiritual thirst. And the minor prophet said that there would be a day coming when there would be a famine that was not a famine of water, but a spiritual famine that would cause people to be hungry. Well, it's happened. There were 400 years before this where 
the people didn't have prophecy. They didn't have uh, a prophet to their nation. They were hungry for the Word. They were hungry for the voice of God. And now here it is. And they have a choice. Now this water being put in you and not getting thirsty again. Turn with me to Judges. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, and then Judges. In the 15th chapter of Judges, we see a good example of the difference between somebody being anointed of the Lord in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, this concept of once it's placed in you, you will never get thirsty again. You find out in the Old Testament, you can start in Judges 15, you'll get there. You find out that in the Old Testament, you were anointed for a specific task. God wanted David to build an ark. I'm speaking of David in our church, not King David, because it was Bethlehem that built those things. But, or God wanted Jude. Judah's also in the Bible. God wanted Brad. Yeah. God wanted Brad to do something, so he anointed him. He put his spirit on him to do that task. And you know what? Sometimes when the task was lifted, so was that anointing. The anointings were situational, much like water. You're hungry, you're thirsty, you drink water and then you go away and that thirst returns. You need the water again. God had put His Spirit on the Jews in the past for specific things. But we're entering into a new age. A new age where His Spirit would be placed on you and it would remain. Remember what uh, John the Baptist said about Jesus? How did He know Jesus was the one? He's the one on whom the Spirit descended and remained. Because everybody else, it had been a fluttering. It had been a touching. Okay, you can do it. They performed their task and then they were without again. We in Christ have drunk of something that got planted in us and it is always there welling up whenever you need it. This is how Jesus can say, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I'm not leaving you as orphans. That's how that happens. Because... We said, Jesus is in my heart. Well, that's true. He's also in your stomach, welling up to eternal life. I mean, there's so many ways to think about it. But God did something special, and He's trying to tell this woman about it. Y'all in Judges? Samson. Would you say Samson was anointed? Lord, I'd love to teach on this, and I don't have time. Uh, The people in Samson's town, they, uh, they were so beaten up with the enemy that here's the deliverer. Here's the guy that has come to free them from the oppressor. And what do they do? They make a treaty with the people that are oppressing them to hand their deliverer over to them. Uh, Verse 13, Agreed, they answered. We will only tie you up and hand you over to them. We will not kill you. So they bound him with two new ropes, and they led him up from the rock. As he approached Lehi, the Philistines came toward him shouting, The Spirit of the Lord came upon him in power. The ropes on his arms became like charred flax, and the bindings dropped from his hands. Finding a fresh jawbone of a donkey, he grabbed it and struck down a thousand men. Samson is being handed over to the oppressor by his own people. Sound familiar? The Romans were oppressing the Jews. The Jews handed Jesus, their deliverer, over to him. Same story. The Bible is the same story. It's repeating many times. But what happened? The Spirit of the Lord came upon him. What does that mean ten minutes before? Ah. He was bound with new ropes. Why new? Why would, why would they have to put new ropes on him? They want him to be strong, right? This is like the devil looking to bind you up. See, 
He's not going to use old ropes. You've already beaten those. They've been around for a long time. You know how to untie them. He's always looking for a new way to tie you up. But when the Spirit of the Lord comes upon you, whatever you're bound with becomes like charred flax and it falls off. Looking around, he found a fresh jawbone. What does that mean? How do you get a fresh jawbone? Can I take Brad's jawbone? No, Brad's not going to willingly give that thing up, is he? I get Judas? Something had to die. He took an instrument that had come from death and fresh, and he killed a thousand men with it. One killed a thousand. This was beginning to get the Israelites into the idea that one man can turn the whole situation around for them. There would be a man of God's appointment with God's Spirit on him that no matter how he was bound, no matter how he was handed over to the oppressor, he could overcome. Now that man's standing beside a well talking to a woman. Jesus I'm talking about. But let me go ahead and finish this because we were talking about water and your need to get it again. With a donkey's jawbone, I have made donkeys of them. With a donkey's jawbone, I have killed a thousand men. When he finished speaking, he threw away the jawbone. By the way, why did Samson throw it away? I'd have kept it. I'd have put it on my mantle place. Put a little plaque under it said, with this thing, I killed a thousand men. The anointing that you get is good for today. You can't hang on to yesterday's victories to carry you through tomorrow. Every day you're supposed to be getting new uh, anointing, a new freshness. That well that's in you is supposed to be welling up every day. It's not enough you got saved ten years ago. It's not enough that you got baptized ten years ago. You need to have an experience with God every day. Okay, moving on from that. Because he was very thirsty, he cried out to the Lord, You have given your servant this great victory. Must I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of uncircumcised? Then God opened up the hollow place in Lehi, and water came out of it. When Samson drank, his strength returned. This guy performed an awesome miracle. He killed a thousand people with one jawbone, then almost died of thirst. The problem with the Old Testament relationship was that there was no way to permanently deal with sin. You had to carry animals. Sin was dealt with a year at a time for a whole nation. It was not permanent. It was temporary until the One came who could offer His blood for all time. This changed the relationship. Now God could indwell you in a permanent fashion. This living water could actually set up residence in you so that you would never fight a battle only to die of thirst again. He would always be there. Turn back to John 4. On this topic of water, you know, to be two million people traveling in the Negev or in the Sinai Peninsula or in Arabia, I mean, depending on what time, what area the Israelites were traveling in, they needed lots of water. In Numbers 19, God gives them regulations about all the things they're supposed to do with water. Now, you know you need to drink it daily, right? Well, they also, if they touched a dead body, had to have a certain amount of water to cleanse them. If a husband suspected his wife of adultery, there was a remedy that involved water. Uh, Water, all the regulations for cleansing with water are given in Numbers 19. Then in Numbers 20, you know what the problem is? We've got no water. So in Numbers 19, God says, hey, you have to use water to do this and this and this and this and this and this and you need a certain amount of it to live. Then in Numbers 20, there's, there's no water. So what did the people do? 
They began to quarrel. They began to fight, complain against their leaders. Why would God tell you, you need water for this and this and this and this, and then in the very next chapter, there be no water? He's trying to get people. Jesus is going to move to a place where He's trying to get this woman to understand you have a need. You have a big need. It takes water for you to live and you don't really have the right kind of water. Y'all remember this story in Numbers 20? See? So they quarrel and God says to Moses, hey, I want you to go and I want you to speak to that rock. Right? And when you speak to that rock, it'll give... Water to the people. Now, there's a whole other message there that I'll teach sometime about Moses took his staff and he hit the rock. God didn't say to hit it. He said to speak to it, right? There's a whole shadow and type there and there's a reason that occurred. In Corinthians 10, do you know what Paul says about that rock? Anybody? In Corinthians 10, Paul said that rock was a spiritual rock and it was Jesus. Now, either Paul's insane or he's speaking figuratively. He's saying that rock was Jesus. What's he trying to teach through that? He's saying, Israel, God requires of you to drink water, to use it for cleansing, to use it for all of these things. You're without water, meaning you're under the power of death. And Jesus is the source of that water. See, this has been going on from the wells. It's been going on throughout Israel's history, rolling through time. And now we're at a place where he's at a well and he's teaching about it. Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go and call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. Why go through that? If Jesus knew she didn't have a husband, why is He telling her to go get her husband? This is no different than Numbers 19 telling Israel, You need water for this, and this, and this, and this. And in Numbers 20, they find, We have no water. He's trying to get her to take an honest assessment of her life because he's talking to her about being a life-giving substance and it's not getting through. So he's illustrating need. God has to take each one of us to a place in our life where we realize we really do need Him. Not just it's a good idea. Not just it's a better way of life. Not, well, it works for Matt and Cassidy. I think I'll try it. Where you need it and you realize your life depends on it. He's not trying to embarrass her. You know, he's not standing up with a megaphone. He's not shouting her sin out everywhere. In fact, he's very accepting. How would most Jews have reacted to her? They wouldn't have been talking to her, number one. Then if they found out she was promiscuous, oh, we found out in John 8 what they do to promiscuous women. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. Oh, he's getting through, isn't he? Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. But you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. You remember the first place living water was ever used in the Bible? Jeremiah 2.13 said, you've got two sins. You forsook me, the spring of living water, and you dug your own cistern? That's the question she's asking. All right, I'm beginning to get it. You're some kind of guy speaking for God. Now, uh, look, 
The Jews say we're supposed to worship over there. Our people say we're supposed to worship here at this cistern. You see? Jesus declared, Believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know. For salvation is from the Jews. Any doubt as to where the true cistern is? Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and His worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. Believe me, woman, a time is coming when people will worship neither on this mountain nor there, for the Father is seeking something. He said a time is coming and has now come. How does that happen? How can a time be coming and now come? It was being fulfilled as He's saying it. He's teaching. And as He's teaching her, He is reaching the fulfillment of that. Now the fulfillment stretches way into our lifetime as well. This is how we're able to worship God here and not on a mountain in Jerusalem called Zion. Because God is seeking something. No longer would He require people to go to a specific place for this living water. He'd require them to go to a specific person for the living water. No longer would they have to fight and dig their own cisterns. No longer would they have to travel long distances to get to the true cistern. Now God would make it available to everyone if, what did He say? The Father seeks. Let's see. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and His worshipers must worship Him in spirit and truth. The gospel is lost. It is lost on most people in one regard. It's approached from an intellectual acceptance. Do you remember Jesus says, hey, if you knew who I was, if you knew who was standing here with you, you'd ask me for water. And she starts thinking about the logistics. You don't have anything to get the water out with. Your arms don't look very long. How are you going to get me water? She's thinking, most people miss the kingdom of God by this distance right here. The distance between your brain and your heart. Jesus is speaking to her spiritual words. She's starting to get it, but she's not there. Most of the time when we're teaching in here, I realize it could be an intellectual pursuit. You could spend a lot of time learning from me about Israel's civil war if that's, if that's what's important to you. But what is important is that you not miss this opportunity at the well to hear something beyond the intellectual pursuit. God is trying to get her into a place where she will approach Him in spirit and in truth. People approach God intellectually all of the time. But it's a whole different matter to approach God spiritually. You know what that requires? It doesn't require you to lay aside all logic. It doesn't require you to be stupid. It doesn't require... It requires you to be incredibly honest and to ask for help that is beyond your ability. Do you understand? Now, here's what's important. As we're talking about this, we're talking about the well of salvation being open and living water that can be given to you and you never get thirsty again. Here's what you, you can't miss. The Father is seeking people. 
When you see a picture of the heavenlies described in the Bible, John describes it in the book of Revelation. Ezekiel describes it in his book. Daniel saw something like it in his book. When you see into the heavenlies, do you know what you see? Creatures with eyes looking back at you. How weird. Brad and I had a discussion the other night that involved this Hebrew imagery. Is is it literally that they have eyes looking back at you or is God trying to say something? Well, in either case, in either case, what it is conveying is God is looking for something. Jeremiah 29.13 says that the eyes of the Lord are ranging the earth. Do you know what He's looking for? He's looking for people like you who are seeking Him, whose hearts are committed to Him. And what does He do when He finds you? He strengthens you. He encourages you. He, this is Jeremiah said this, not me. He edifies you so that you can reach Him. He will give you a source of water so that you don't run out after a day or two. So that you don't get tempted to grumble against your leaders. So that you don't find yourself under the power of death. He will put it in you. You know what's required of a Christian? If you're in trouble, you don't have to run to a church. You don't have to find a pastor. You can get on your knees wherever you are and access the spring of living water that is within you. This is how you can never be put in a position that you can't overcome. God is inside of you. Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you, He said, even until the very end of the age. Now, what happens at the end of the age? He gives you even more of Himself inside you. And your body can't contain it. You're glorified. This is a pretty good deal. I mean, in the Old Testament, you might get anointed for a task. I need you to build something, Bobby. Here. Here's my divine ability and attributes. Build it and then I'm done with you. Not really, but you understand what I'm saying. In this scenario, God is pouring Himself in you and whenever you need to draw upon His strength, you need to draw upon His wisdom, He's already there. Now, I'm not teaching New Age stuff about the God within you that's growing. I'm telling you that He put His divine characteristics there because it's what the Bible said. You've participated in His divine nature. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ. Don't you love that? Just in case you don't understand the Hebrew word Messiah, John includes the Greek word for you, Christ. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When He comes, He will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I who speak to you am He. Now friends, have you ever run into this? You are teaching something about God. You are understanding something about God. And you get excited and you go share it with Sister Mandy. Say, hey, look, look. But because it doesn't quite agree with Mandy, maybe it's different than what she's grown up with. She's a Democrat and you're a Republican. Or she's a Baptist and you're a Methodist. Whatever it is. What do people say? Oh, well, that's not important, but what is important is Jesus will come back. That's what this woman said. We'll, we'll wait to, to decide anything. We'll wait to make any decisions until Messiah comes. The problem is, Messiah was there. Now, if Messiah is also in you, if His Spirit is in you, welling up to eternal life, you don't have to wait for Messiah to come back. This is how Paul teaches in Corinthians 1 and 2 that you have the mind of Christ. He's revealing Himself to you now. We don't have to wait for the end for everything to be revealed. You have it now. You need to access it. We're going to close with this. 
But do you remember Nicodemus? Nicodemus comes and Jesus talks to him and he spends a lot of time really laying it on Nicodemus heavy, teaching him about the bronze serpent that had to be lifted up. He's saying, man, you are so snake-bitten and so full of death. You need to look towards me. saying, I didn't come to condemn the world. You guys are all already condemned. You need to come to me and find life. I mean, he put it on him hard. Now, this woman, she's guilty. She knows she's guilty. She was guilty when she got there. She's had five people who are not her husband. The man she's living with is not her husband. She knows what society thinks about her. She's out there at the well. Do you see the softer side of Jesus? If you knew, if you knew who I was, you'd ask me. Well, I, I don't understand. This is the same stupid kind of statement that Nicodemus made. Can a man enter his mother's womb a second time? But instead of Jesus answering her with a riddle like he did Nicodemus, he comes right out and says, I'm the Messiah. I'm the spring of living water. God's heart is always to openly reveal Himself to the lowly and the humble in heart, but He will hide Himself from the wise, from those that think that they don't need help. That's why it's always important. I was talking about this before our message started today. Not treating prophecy with contempt. Not, not, teaching, not treating instruction with contempt. If you approach everything from the position of a student, from the position of a child, and say, hey, I don't have it all together, I don't know anything, and you listen and learn and let God weed out the, the meat from the bones, you will grow in your spiritual walk. When your intellect and your pride begins to swell to cause you not to be able to accept things, to cause you to look at everything logically and not let it penetrate to the heart at all, you cut yourself off from God. This woman leaves this place and goes and tells everybody that she knows about Jesus. Salvation came to her that day. And the difference between her and Nicodemus that it took another three years to get saved was the condition of their hearts. She was certainly in worse sin from a natural standpoint. I mean, Nicodemus would have been clean, pure, proper. She was filthy. Some might even have called her a whore. But she found salvation within an hour of meeting Jesus. It took Nicodemus three years. And you know, the only difference between them was one had religious instruction and the other didn't. One was a blank slate waiting for God, and the other thought he already had it all figured out. I don't know which you are. I don't know which the people you will run into are. But I know one kind receives from God much better than the other, and I'm making it my goal to worship in spirit and truth and be the kind that the Father is seeking. I think you ought to make it your goal too. Today's message is the living water. You have it in you, and here's the beautiful part, and we close with this. As it wells up in you, the Bible speaks of you not being filled once, not being filled twice, but a continual process of be being filled, is how Ephesians says it. So if you have this spring in you that is continually being filled, it has to be overflowing. Christianity is always centrifugal. If you spend time, spend Spend time around people. What is in you is supposed to be moving outward to everybody around you because you're continuously being filled and it is overflowing to people around you. That is why Christianity is like leaven, working through the dough. You ought not be able to spend time with me and me not be able to spend time with you and walk away unchanged. All of us are supposed to be spurring one another on to Jesus. Does that make sense? Y'all stand up and let's pray.